Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Jewel Show podcast. Today on the pod, we look at Canada's population boom and the growing challenges the policy poses on affordability and housing right here in Metro Vancouver. Plus, from long waits to mechanical problems to its website going down, what is going on at BC Ferries? And please spare me the excuses. And we look into a call for greater transparency on UFOs as U.S. lawmakers hear testimony on unidentified aerial phenomena. That's all next on the Jazz Johal Show podcast. So what does this cabinet shuffle actually mean for our region, particularly when it comes to continued growth and dollars actually coming from Ottawa? The Prime Minister there referenced the fact that there are many new challenges. I would argue there are actually old challenges around affordability and housing and transit. Joining now to talk about some of these issues is Port Coquitlam Mayor and Chair of the Mayor's Council on Regional Transportation, uh, Brad West. Brad, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Jazz. Uh, lots to talk about here. First of all, you know, these cabinet shuffles, generally the political class, the media class pay a lot of attention. Uh, it was made to be, uh, you know, a major shuffle, and perhaps it is in regards to the movement uh, in and out of different people. Um, but uh, does this change anything for you in the position you're in as uh, a member of the, uh, or sorry, the chair of the Mayor's Council on Regional Transportation Issues? Well, not dramatically, because I think you're right. A lot gets made out of uh, who's in and who's out. But, you know, generally speaking, when the person at the top continues to be the person at the top, the trajectory and direction of government stays the same. So I haven't seen anything that suggests to me uh, the government's going to be moving in a wildly different direction. I mean, it does give uh, the mayor's council, uh, our region's mayors, the opportunity to uh, speak to a, a new minister uh, and, and take another kick at the can at getting action, and uh, that really is what it's all about. Uh, you were bang on when you said these aren't new challenges. These are challenges that we've had for some time. The only thing that's new is they're getting exasperated every single day that we don't see action, uh, and that's really my focus and the focus of our region's mayors is, you know, we've, d- we've done lots of talking, we've done lots of consulting, we've done lots of studying, Let's get on with actually seeing some of the tax dollars that leave Metro Vancouver to go to Ottawa be reinvested in this region to support the growing population that we currently have and are going to see even more of over the next number of years. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, Vancouver itself, Metro Vancouver, represents about 50, 55% of BC's population, 61% of its GDP. Uh, but your letter today, just over in regards to congratulating the new cabinet and some of the challenges that Metro Vancouver faces, you articulated them well in that letter. Uh, on this show last week, we did a we had a couple of segments we focused on, which we called, I'm pro-immigration, but... And we left it open, but really talking about what has slowly been filtering in, what we've been hearing in that particular phrase, because people are concerned about uh, immigration, not in the sense that we're anti-immigration, but we are challenged by the amount of immigrants that are coming to this country and whether or not the infrastructure of our major cities can handle it, particularly Vancouver. Give me a sense with that, uh, that is the overarching issue, where are we headed in the Lower Mainland if we do not 
add more services, if we don't get more dollars from Ottawa specifically, where are we headed in this city when it comes to housing, transportation, and broadly about affordability? Well, I don't think we're headed anywhere good. Uh, you know, we're headed to a place where we could see a very significant deterioration in the quality of life in, in Metro Vancouver. Uh, and our livability as a region is what has defined us for many, many decades and has made this a, a, you know, a very attractive place to live. You know, the reality is when you're adding to our region approximately 50,000 people every single year, and, you know, let's put that into a context that we can all understand. That's like t- taking the population of the city of North Vancouver currently every single year. So adding that population to our region, uh, that's going to have an impact. And if, if we don't have the infrastructure and services in place uh, to support that growing population, which you're absolutely right, brings with it a number of benefits, uh, but it, it's not a cure-all to every uh, problem that ails us, especially if we're not seeing senior government step up to provide support. Uh, let's look at it from a transportation lens and uh, wearing my mayor's council hat. Look, the reality is that uh, people have to get all over this region. They got to get to work. They got to get to school. They got to get uh, to Costco. They got to get their kids to uh, activities. Uh, if we don't provide people realistic options other than their vehicle, that's what they're going to use. Uh, and we're going to see congestion. We're going to see pollution. We're going to see the, pro- the region and the province and the country not be able to meet its ambitious uh, climate objectives. Uh, so there's some real things that are at stake here, and there are real consequences to the federal government in particular, because they're the ones that are setting this target around immigration, not stepping up and providing the basic infrastructure that's required. And, and it gets as basic, we're talking about transportation, that's meat and potatoes type stuff. It, it gets as basic as, you know, people being able to flush their toilet. Uh, you know, all of that takes infrastructure, uh, and we have a, a, a big backlog in our region. Mm-hmm. And if we don't see that investment happening, we're going to be in some real trouble. So in this case, uh, if you look at the past 12 months, Canada's population um, grew by 1.2 million people, driven by obviously higher annual targets for permanent immigration, temporary foreign workers, international students, non-permanent residents. Uh, A new report by TD uh, came out today, basically says that when you look at temporary foreign worker program usage uh, by employers and and provincial governments, study permits in 2023, so far that uh, TD says Canada's population is likely to increase by another million people this year. So that's 2023. And if that happens, the gap between housing supply and demand would grow to 500,000 units through 2025. So that is significant. So in this case, if, if you're sitting across the table right now from Prime Minister Trudeau, and they say, he said, give me three things that you need help on. And it may be a specific ask for a certain billion dollars for a SkyTrain line. What would be the top three things you would ask for for Metro Vancouver in your mind? Well, the single biggest thing that the federal government could do from a transportation perspective is to uh, provide operating funding uh, to the agency. Um, They have stepped up on uh, capital requests in the past. Now, that needs to be accelerated significantly. The track record of building, you know, one SkyTrain extension 
uh, once a decade, usually tied to a very significant international event like the Olympics. I mean, mm-hmm. that's just not going to cut it anymore. Uh, but the federal government is completely absent from providing support for the ongoing operation uh, of the authority. Uh, can um, I stop you, unlike- just, Brad? Can I just start my apologies? I want to stop you there. Why should the federal government be responsible for operating? Uh, I understand capital and building the actual hard infrastructure that one time cost. But do you think the federal government should be in the business of providing operating or covering operating expenses on a regular basis? Yeah, I do think there is a role there. In fact, in, in most of the G8, their uh, country, federal governments do provide uh, support to their transit agencies in their major urban, urban centers. Um, the reality is that uh, because we want to keep transit to be a very attractive option for people to use, uh, you know, fares are not exorbitant. They are kept uh, quite modest because there is a recognition that there is uh, a value in all of that. And so uh, the federal government certainly, I think, has a, a role to play, and there's different ways that that can, uh, that can be achieved. Uh, but the model that has been used thus far to fund uh, the operating of the agency, I think, is very outdated. It's reliant upon uh, property tax, uh, on gas tax, uh, and then on fares. And, uh, you know, we always say this, and it, it is true, you know, there's only one taxpayer. And so, uh, you know, you're already seeing people through their property taxes and through their gas tax uh, having to you know, make significant cop- contributions to the operating of, of the agency. Uh, so I do think that there is a role there. Uh, on, the, uh, on the housing side of things, um, it's you know, providing some, uh, some funding and then getting out of the way. Uh, there are so many examples of various sites uh, that are ready to go in Metro Vancouver that could be used to be providing housing uh, but local government uh, and nonprofits, uh, you know, who are often able to deliver non-market affordable housing, uh, are often challenged with significant infrastructure upgrades that are required to support those sites. Sometimes, when you go through this uh, process of trying to achieve a federal grant to be able to support it, uh, it, it is unbelievable the amount of red tape and hoops that you have to jump through uh, with, you know, virtually no guarantees at the end of the day after investing all those resources that you're going to get any support. Uh, So I I think that whole system needs to be very much streamlined. Uh, And the other piece on housing that I think is really key Mm -hmm. is we've got to do a lot around skill trades and construction. Uh, you know, it's easy for politicians to talk about, well, we're going to build this many housing units, we're going to build that many housing units. Uh, you talk to people on the ground who actually build the housing, because government isn't building the housing. Uh, it, it's making announcements, but building the housing, we have a critical shortage uh, of those uh, folks who actually swing a hammer and get the job done. That um, is true. And, if, and if, we need, if we need to deliver the type of housing and the number of units we're talking about, Uh, We sure as heck better turn our attention to that, or else it's just not going to happen. Brad, uh, we've run out of time. Look forward to having you in studio. I know you're away today. Appreciate you making time for us. Uh, we'll, We'll chat soon. Thanks very much, Jess. 
lawmakers pushed the federal government to reveal more information on unidentified aerial phenomena, or often known as UFOs, as three former military officials testified during a congressional hearing uh, today. The House Oversight Committee uh, on National Security, the Border and Foreign Affairs, uh, of border of border and foreign affairs her testimony from three witnesses david grush a former u.s intelligence official uh, david fravor a former u.s navy commander and ryan graves a former navy pilot graver graves and fravor both claim to have spotted uh, ufos uh, here is david grush during his testimony if you believe we have crashed craft uh stated earlier do we have the bodies of the pilots who piloted this craft as I've stated publicly already in my News Nation interview, uh, biologics came with some of these recoveries. Yeah. Were they, I guess, human or non-human biologics? Non-human, and that was the assessment of people uh, with direct knowledge on the program I talked to that are currently still on the program. Joining me now to talk about uh, this uh, testimony today, uh, which went on for two hours, it was quite fascinating to sit and watch some of it, uh, is Chris Rutkowski. He's a UFO expert, science writer, and educator with a background in astronomy. Mr. Rutkowski, thank you for joining us today. Glad to be here. So, uh, first question to you, how important was today's testimony? Well, I think fairly significant because although we've heard many of these stories before, in fact, some of these same witnesses have been uh, giving their testimonies uh, to media and in magazine articles and so forth for years now, this is the first time it's been entered in a, not the congressional record itself, but to a hearing, uh, you know, where the public is getting more access to this and certainly to people who are in positions to be able to do something about it. Do you think uh, government generally, the U.S. government specifically, but government generally have just been, governments have been too secretive about what they know and don't know? Well, that's one theme that really came out from this hearing is that uh, uh, there does seem to be a, uh, a definite curtain <laughs> covering up uh, what's really been going on and what's uh, being claimed. Of course, there is no mechanism for releasing confidential or classified information to the general public. So, uh, you know, this will be up to Congress to come up with a way in which some of this material can't be made public. A lot of what has been uh, presented today, including the stuff by uh, David Grush, a little clip that you played there, uh, you know, he himself has not seen any of this evidence. It's what he's been told. The question is, you know, was he told accurate information mm-hmm. and by whom? But he's not willing to say anything about that. Uh, because of the classified nature, and he's not willing to say it publicly. So we're sort of stymied. We're at a, uh, uh, you know, at a, at a struggling point. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you think we collectively as society should rush to declassify this information? And what I mean by that is, you know, how would we use it? What does it mean in regards to our broader societal conversation? Because some things are classified for a reason, whether it's national security uh, whether what you know this information could impact um, how we perhaps look at things, uh, do you think there is any value in keeping it classified? Well, there's no question that some information should be kept classified. You know, one can just imagine uh, if a pilot was flying over, let's say, uh, Ukraine, and sees a UFO. Well, that pilot might have been on a, a special security mission. Uh, that might have the technology itself uh, for observing that UFO might be. Uh, classified. So there's certainly some danger in releasing classified information uh, sort of very broadly. Uh, but at the same time, uh, some of the claims that were made today, such as misappropriation of, of funds uh, and uh, deliberate obfuscation of, of what's really going on, 
that might need to be addressed because some of it, uh, it was suggested that uh, uh, some of these programs operate outside the uh, Pentagon budget and outside any congressional oversight. Um, uh, the broader issue here, why do you think government, even having this conversation today, why is it you think it's taken so long for government to allow this kind of hearing to go, go to move forward? Well, certainly inertia is part of this. This has been going on for quite some time, if we were to believe uh, the stories. Uh, we do know that uh, since 1969, that goes back quite a ways, we really have no information about what has been going on with uh, regard to UFOs or UAP uh, in the United States, uh, because uh, Project Blue Book, that some people have certainly heard of, uh, which was a study of UFOs, it closed down in 1969. And since that time, we really had no information what was going on in the United States. And uh, until it was recently released uh, just a matter of years ago, of uh, cases where uh, projects were undergone uh, in the, the mid-2000s to study uh, UFOs and UAP. So we really don't know exactly what's going on, and it's been fairly kept quiet. But in Canada, uh, there's a significant difference uh, because we do have a fairly uh, consistent record of what has been done with regard to UFOs. The National Research Council uh, had been in charge of uh, UFO programs since the 1960s up until mid-1990s, working with the RCMP. And after that, Transport Canada and certainly the RCAF uh, have been... uh, uh, working, I've been privileged to have access to some of these documents. We have a good record of what's been seen in Canada mm-hmm. uh, at an official level, at least from the 1940s till the present, which is very different from what's going on in the United States, and we probably still don't have all the information. Is this mostly a North American phenomenon? I rarely hear uh, or see stories from Europe, especially Eurasia, saying, you know, uh, uh, please deliver more information on UFOs. Uh, you get a lot of stories out of the United States, perhaps some out of Canada as well. Uh, but you don't hear a lot of these types of stories from from Europe. Uh, no, you don't hear about it, but there certainly are many, many cases. In fact, governments around the world mm-hmm. uh, have been studying the UFO phenomenon. Uh, most notably, France uh, has published its own version. Its, uh, uh, its space, uh, space office uh, has been uh, releasing information about UFOs seen in that country. Uh, certainly, Norway has, uh, has a project underway. And other countries around the world certainly do have some, some reports. In fact, we do have reports and case studies uh, from Russia, you know, pre what's going on right now. But the uh, Soviet Union had been very involved in the UFO studies for many, many years. And there's no, no reason to suspect it's still not going on. Mm-hmm. Final question to you. Uh, as a science writer who has followed this issue for a very long time. What was it like for you today to just listen to that testimony in in an official government capacity, that this is a, a conversation where people have to swear an oath and to testify and to just to sit there and listen to all that? What was it like for you? Well, it, it, as I mentioned, we've heard some of this before. In fact, uh, there really wasn't anything new presented before uh, because a lot of it had been uh, presented previously. In fact, Grusha alluded to the fact that he talked about much of this on a, on a television program. So uh, it's not new. Uh, certainly it is new in the sense uh, that, uh, you know, it's being presented to a, a congressional uh, subcommittee, which is quite interesting. And uh, there's going to have to be some, you know, some fallout from this. Some things have to be done regarding it. Mr. Rutkowski, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. 
But let's focus on an issue that is near and dear to all of us, and that is, of course, getting around this province, especially to Vancouver Island and back. Uh, the last month or so, let's just think about this for a second. BC's ferries has been plagued by technical and mechanical difficulties when it comes to its vessels. Um, there have been last-minute cancellations. There have been staffing shortages. Uh, and we learned today that um, BC Ferries passengers uh, may have to wait up to six weeks longer than normal to get refunds, uh, which begs the question, what is going on over at BC Ferries? It's independently managed, uh, owned by the province, of course, but it's independently managed. So you would think it would have at least some uh, semblance uh, and uh, uh, feeling towards the private sector in regards to meeting the needs of customers. Um, I just don't know why this is happening. Joining me to talk a little bit about the issue is Kevin Falcon, leader of BC United. Kevin, thank you for joining us today. Well, thanks very much for having me. My apologies for my frustration off the top, but as I was uh, just listening to the, and thinking about all that's occurred over the last four to six weeks, it is very frustrating. First of all, in your mind, I mean, you've been in government. You tell me, uh, how would you describe the last four to six weeks or so when it comes to BC Ferries performance? Well, I would describe it fundamentally as, as one of mismanagement. I mean, these are all the challenges, all the excuses they throw out whether it's, you know, IT problems, underinvestment in IT, uh, you know, lack of uh, employees, scheduling problems, you know, breakdowns in the ferries. I mean, they've, they've thrown out every possible excuse for why the public isn't getting the service they, they deserve. And the bottom line, I think, goes right, right up to mismanagement. You, you said it best. You know, they're, they're supposed to be independently operating. We actually structured BC Ferries so that politicians couldn't interfere. And that was important because... Uh, the moment you get politicians trying to direct the, you know, the kind of service they should be delivering, that's when things start to go wrong. And what we saw under the NDP, unfortunately, is they fired the chair of the board. They put in uh, Joy McPhail, who has absolutely no experience uh, that I'm aware of in the business sector, or frankly, certainly not in the in the in the boating sector. She was one of the architects for the fast ferries, which was that <clears throat> for those uh, younger listeners that may not recall. Uh, when the NDP government in the 90s decided they were going to get into building uh, ferries, aluminum ferries in British Columbia, all three of them didn't operate properly, and they ended up being sold for scrap metal at a fraction of the $500 million that went into them. She's now the chair of the board. Uh, She fired the president, brought in a new president that will take political direction. And, uh, you know, frankly, I think we're seeing the results of that kind of interference because now you've got an executive that's always got to be looking over their shoulder, wondering what the political masters are going to want them to be doing uh, with all these different issues. And, so, and uh, that's that's unfortunate. So what would you change beyond your saying, you know, and perhaps demanding accountability, uh, the the leadership being fired? What is it? Is it a case of needing more vessels because one goes down and the entire system seems to, to, to be challenged? Is it really a case of COVID and new rules from the federal government in regards to how many people you need on a vessel? Uh, is it COVID itself? Like what would you specifically, two or three things, give me a sense of what you would like to see change management-wise or operationally that you think would fix this? Sure. Those are all symptoms of the larger problem. The larger problem is getting rid of political interference, getting the politicians off the board, getting professionals on the board that hire a CEO who's got a track record and the competence and the abilities to run the organization. Uh, You know, I think back to when David Hahn was running the the organization, even though I would sometimes get frustrated with David occasionally, Mm -hmm. uh, he still ran it. And I'll tell you, when there was problems, he was always there. He was right on the front line. 
dealing with the issue, addressing it on the radio, showing real leadership by being a sort of a boots on the ground kind of individual. And, uh, you know, frankly, I haven't heard from the CEO. You rarely hear from the ministers. They get some communications person, you know, trying to respond to it. And there's just, uh, you know, there's, there's just not the leadership that this organization needs. I don't blame it on the staff, frankly. They're all doing a great job. They do the best they can. Uh, you know, given the, the the executive leadership they're getting. But I think that's fundamentally the issue. You get the right people in place that have strong backgrounds, executive backgrounds, know what they're doing without political interference, and you start to get an operation that's running more efficiently. Mm-hmm. Uh, COVID, it, it, in your mind, that is just an excuse now more and more? I mean, you hear it from the private sector too, don't get me wrong, in regards to the, here are the impacts, they may be impacting our staffing, may be impacting us operationally, we don't have enough employees, we have to hire more employees. You hear this in the private sector as well. How much of this is COVID in your mind in regards to ferries? Well, you know, the, the staffing challenges they face, I, I you know, frankly, whether that's, uh, you know, any hangover from people, you know, that... Uh, that just don't feel like going to work as much anymore or not, I, I don't know. I think that would be a lesser issue, and I think it's more about how they structure the staffing decisions. You know, a lot of people aren't prepared to just be on call and work part-time, uh, you know, so maybe they have to look at making sure that they've got more full-time employees, that they're being, uh, you know, appropriately uh, compensated for the work that they're doing, and that there's uh, incentives for them to not only stay, but to, you know, uh, uh, get others that are interested in, having an outstanding career in the ferry industry. Uh, you know, BC Ferries has historically been a good employer. They've, they've you know, hired a lot of good people. And uh, it just seems in the la- over the last five, six years that something has been happening there that is, is concerning because these problems don't happen overnight. They, they escalate after, you know, um, frankly, a series of poor decisions that accumulate. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just want to step away from ferries just for a moment uh, and just talk about infrastructure. And I view ferries as part of that broader transportation in infrastructure. I had George Harvey on yesterday, the mayor uh, of, of Delta, and he was on mostly talking about the Highway 17A overpass that it's been shut down. His community needs some answers in regards to when it will run, be open again because of that uh, uh, that semi that hit the overpass uh, last week. But we then veered off a little bit into the broader conversation of not just over, overpasses needing, needing to be replaced. Uh, Steveston being one on the Richmond side and then and the Highway 17A uh, on, on the Delta side because it was built in 1958 and those are built uh, at, at a 4.15 metre level and the newer ones were at 5 metres. Nevertheless, it was a broader conversation on on infrastructure. But he made this comment in regards to a crossing. Take a listen to what he had to say. Well, as far as south of the phrase is concerned, I've had many conversations with Minister Fleming. We need, as you know, a Desperately need a second exit out of Ladder. With our growth and the projections and the province requiring us to build more housing, we need a second exit out. And uh, we also need to look at uh, another crossing because the capacity that will be absorbed with regards to the new uh, George Massey Tunnel replacement, it'll be vastly consumed based upon the growth that's happening south of the Fraser. We need another crossing. So uh, as you heard there uh, from Mayor Harvey, he's not talking about the Massey crossing at all. He's actually talking about another crossing after that. So whether it's yeah. ferries 
whether mm. it's the Massey Tunnel, and as George Harvey said, we need another crossing south of the Fraser. Why have we had such an infrastructure deficit in this province? I don't understand that. We built that South Fraser Primer Road, which I think you were a part of, which once the growth of the port continues with the um, with what they plan to do, that's going to get busier and busier. My concern is, why do we have such a vast, vast infrastructure deficit in this city, considering it should be a non-partisan issue? Yeah, it should be. Well, I think some of it, frankly, just comes uh, back to just basic competence. With all due respect to my friends in the NDP government, I, I'm sure they have good intentions, but they don't come from a background that knows how to get infrastructure or big projects done. I oversaw $14 billion of infrastructure projects when I was Minister of Transporta- Transportation. That included, like you say, the South Fraser Perimeter Road, the Portman Bridge, the Pitt River Bridge, four-laning 176th Street, number 10 number 10 highway, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, what Mayor Harvey said is actually true. The problem is the NDP cancelled the the 10-lane bridge, as you know. It would have been open two summers ago. And what they're going to end up opening uh, eight years from now for billions of dollars more is going to have the same number of commuter lanes than we have today when you've got the counterflow, three lanes in each direction for commuter traffic. And the problem is that'll be jammed on the day it opens. Um, They're doing it again with the Patala Bridge. You know, there's a bridge that's 80 years old, it was built when the population of Surrey was, you know, 14,000 people. Today, it's 600,000 plus and growing. And the NDP are replacing that four-lane bridge with a four-lane bridge. I mean, this doesn't in any way take into account not only the growth that's happened over the last 80 years, but what's going to be happening over the next 100 years. Mm-hmm. And I find it very frustrating because I just think, frankly, it's basic competence. We've got to have people that not only know how to get things done, but know how to have a strategic plan in place to ensure that you're building projects like that, but you're also building, as I did, the Canada line, the Evergreen line, and making sure that we're thinking about rapid transit options too. Mm-hmm. Kevin, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. No problem, Jeff. Thanks for having me on. Look forward to being on next time. Today in a major cabinet shuffle, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau promoted seven rookies to his front bench, dropped seven ministers, and reassign the majority of, uh, of cabinet roles. It's one of, if not the most consequential configurations to his cabinet since 2015, meant to reset the minority liberal agenda after eight years in power. Here in British Columbia, BC MP Terry Beach, uh, MP for Burnaby North Seymour, finally becomes a minister, and he's a minister of citizen services. Uh, Harjeet Sajjan becomes the minister of emergency preparedness. Uh, Carla Qualtro from Delta, uh, also a member of Parliament, becomes Minister of Sport and Physical Activity. Jonathan Wilkinson stays put, uh, but his portfolio is being renamed Energy and Natural Resources. A lot of changes, but what does it all mean? Well, joining me now is Warren Kinsella. He's a Toronto-based lawyer, author and consultant and former special assistant to Jean Chrétien. Warren, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So let's jump in here. Uh, your thoughts on this cabinet? What was sort of your reaction after uh, Mr. Trudeau announced uh, his cabinet? Well, I know the cliche is to say it's shuffling chairs on the deck of the Titanic, and the polls certainly suggest that the Trudeau government is in some trouble. Uh, it may work. You know, they needed to do a restart. They needed to unplug the computer and plug it in again. So, you know, this may have the effect of doing that. But, you know, if you look at the polling, Nanos yesterday, Abacus today, those are two firms that are not hostile to this government. Uh, The Trudeau government is in some big trouble. If an an election was held today, Pierre Polyev would win a majority government. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, the government is spinning this as a complete overhaul. There are many new faces. Uh, does that change anything, though? I mean, I I saw new faces, but I also kind of felt, well, I, I didn't know of any up-and-coming star in any meaningful way that was, where you could say, hey, these guys are heading in a different direction. They're listening, they're hearing. Uh, seven fresh new faces, but is that enough? Yeah, and, it, and will it work? You know, the, the problem with a government like Trudeau, so I've got a column about this in Post Media mm-hmm. today, and, um, you know, past prime ministers have been very successful. You know, Chrétien had Paul Martin and John Manley. Mulroney had Joe Clark and Kim Campbell. And, you know, Stephen Harper had um, any number of ministers who were senior and, and memorable. Trudeau does not. And, you know, that's a problem in terms of succession when he eventually leaves. Like, there's no clear person standing in the wings to take over the Liberal Party of Canada. But the other problem is when he stumbles, and he has stumbled many times with SNC-Lavalin and Jody Wilson-Raybould or uh, the Wee scandal or now Chinese interference in our democracy, there's nobody to kind of protect him or, or pick up the reins or, or you know, carry the Liberal brand forward. And that is a big, big problem. It, it, sometimes it resembles more, Liberal Party remembers more, uh, more of a cult of personality to me than an actual political party. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I just want to switch gears just for a moment here. Uh, BC MP Terry Beach of Burnaby North becomes Minister, Minister of Citizen Services. Uh, you know, Carla Qualtro becomes Minister of Sport and, and, and Physical Activity. I mean, these are important in the grand scheme of things. I know every uh, department is important here. Uh, and Harjeet Sajjan uh, is president of the King's Privy Council, Minister of Emergency Preparedness. Jonathan Wilkinson stays in his portfolio, but it's renamed to Energy and Natural Resources. Um, you know, you could say, look, we we have ministers from British Columbia, but my sense, even since 2015, they've taken away the minister's regional office here. There doesn't seem to be, to me, a feeling that we have a strong representative for the federal government in British Columbia tackling local issues. It can be as simple a thing as answering uh, the local newscast questions on a specific issue at any given time. Now, that person is available, that we have a strong representative from B.C. Minister Wilkinson, strong on policy, probably not the most natural politician. The other ones I find generally keep a low profile out here. Uh, my sense is it's always been this way, that Mr. Trudeau has such a big brand that, that we don't have sort of a local B.C.-specific MP minister that is ready to speak to B.C. issues locally, and even challenge some of the status quo in Ottawa. I totally agree. You know, uh, you know, I don't think it's just a neglect of BC and BC issues. Like it's actual disrespect. You know, one of Trudeau's answers traditionally when he has heard this criticism and say, "Well, you know, I come from the the Sinclair dynasty in in BC. I come from you know a proud liberal tradition in the province of British Columbia." But, it, you know, I don't think that that's the case in, in, in the eyes of voters. And the polling shirt certainly reflects that, that the Liberal Party of Canada is in big trouble in British Columbia. You know, I think they'll hold on to, as things stand now, they'll hold on to some seats in the lower mainland, hold on to some seats in, in Vancouver proper. But they're, they're going to lose seats for the very reason you cite. The Liberal Party of Canada has kind of become invisible in Vancouver and, and in BC generally. And, you know, having lived there and having run there myself, 
you got to work it. you got to work hard because Ottawa is seen as far, far away, and Ottawa is seen as not being interested in the issues that are matter in B.C. And I think this cabinet shuffle, you know, no disrespect to any of these new faces, this cabinet shuffle is, is more evidence of that. Our guest is Warren Kinsella. We're talking about uh, today the uh, Prime Minister announcing uh, his new cabinet, an overhaul, seven new ministers uh, brought into new portfolios. We've been talking about the state of the, uh, the, the government itself and, and where it stands in regards to many issues. Uh, Warren, let's touch on a little bit about the course correction uh, beyond this uh, cabinet shuffle. Many people have said, you know, the party has obviously moved to the left uh, and that's it's been successful in doing so, whether it's with uh, the NDP in regards to this coalition and even for uh, Mr. Trudeau to first be elected in 2015. The course correction that's needed now from what you see and what you're seeing, it almost seems to mean the Liberals almost need to turn into Chrétien Liberals of the past, which is a heavy focus on uh, economy and even a Martin liberals as well. And the, together, both of them uh, dealt with the issue of deficit and debt in a significant way. Uh, it seems to me the party almost needs to move to that type of liberal again to have a chance. Well, I was your Gretchen's special assistant, so I tend to agree <laughs> with you. You know, and we made some of the biggest cuts to the federal, federal government in generations uh, because we had to. You know, like this, the deal that that Justin Trudeau did with Jagmeet Singh, on the one hand, it was positive for him. It obviously basically transformed what was a minority government into a majority government and gave him stability. And basically, he brought together the left in 2022 in the way that Stephen Harper brought together the right in 2004. The downside, however, is exactly what you just said. By doing a deal with the NDP, it looks like he's abandoned economic issues. It looks like he's abandoned prudent you know, fiscal policy. And that's revealed again in the polling that I talked about before the break, which is both NAOS and Abacus, two respected polling agencies used by the Trudeau government, find overwhelmingly if your issue, if your top issue is the economy, People believe that the Conservative Party is about four times better at holding, handling the economy than the Liberal Party. In fact, the Liberal Party is only a couple points ahead of the NDP in terms of which party is best to handle the economy. Hmm. Uh, one other issue I want to uh, touch on with you, and, and it actually comes from a, a phrase that I've been hearing a lot of uh, in the last probably three or four months here, and it's been growing, and that phrase is, I'm pro-immigration, but, uh, and usually that's followed up with concerns over affordability, uh, concerns over housing, and specifically referencing the fact that we are allowing a significant amount of immigrants to come to this country. Uh, back in the 1990s, we'd be debating, you know, 225, 250,000 Canadians coming here. Today, this year, I think it's about 460, 480,000. Next year in 2025, it's half a million. So not only uh, are people talking about that uh, at the economic level, at the business community level, but even immigrants themselves, people who are children of immigrants or have been here for a long time but came here as immigrants and saying, wait a minute, slow down here. We have a housing crisis. We have an affordability challenge. We understand we need immigrants, but half a million, that seems like way too much. Um, do you think that's going to hurt 
Mr. Uh, Mr. Trudeau and his government potentially because I haven't heard this type of well, I don't want to call it anti-immigration because it's not but it's a concern over the immigration numbers that continues to grow. Even today, with this cabinet shuffle, um, the, one of the mayoralty representatives of our TransLink system, Brad West out of Poco, uh, uh, was on this show saying, basically, look, uh, we're pro-immigration, but the impact on housing and affordability is significant. I'm just wondering, a party that generally does well with immigrant votes, could this be the moment where perhaps immigration hurts them? Well, you and I have known each other for a long time. You know I've written books about racism. Mm-hmm. It is not racist to talk about immigration policy. It's not racist to have concerns about the way we've done immigration policy. And there's no better example of that than what's taken place in the city of Toronto in the past few days. In the past few days, the Trudeau government has been accepting refugees, as it should. You know That is part of our international obligation. It's a moral and ethical obligation we have to people who are escaping uh, turmoil and human rights abuses and so on. The, the, the Trudeau government has allowed them to sleep on the sidewalk in Toronto. You know, men, women, and children on the sidewalk to the point where the new mayor of Toronto, Olivia Chow, said, enough is enough. And she and Doug Ford, the conservative premier of Ontario, <laughs> issued a joint press release saying the Trudeau government needs to come to grips with the fact that its immigration and refugee policy is all wrong. They're bringing people in, and they're not helping them. They're not helping them integrate into Canadian society and get jobs and so on. So you're absolutely right. That concern that people have got, it's shared by immigrants and refugees themselves. It's like, why did you let us in just to abandon us? And, you know, that's something that the Trudeau guys need to address as well, and I think that reflected in the numbers that we're seeing in the polling in the past few days. Mm. Well, it's going to be a very interesting fall uh, when they get uh, back to um, the House and uh, lots of debate, and we'll, I'm sure, talk again, my friend. Thank you so much for your time today. Thanks, my friend. Let's go uh, and revisit uh, a story that we first told you about uh, on Friday, uh, and we want to give you an update on that story. Now, Kim Marsh uh, is a BC-based private investigator and former commander of an RCMP International Organized Crime Unit. Uh, He was named as a co-conspirator in the allegations uh, against former Mountie uh, Bill uh, Maker that we had told you about last week. Mr. Maker is a retired RCMP investigator. He was charged on uh, Thursday with two counts of breaching the security of Information Act, Canada's official secrets law. Uh, And, of course, Kim Marsh, we learned early this week on Monday, uh, has been named as a co-conspirator. Now, the interesting part uh, regarding Mr. Marsh is that uh, he recently, uh, by recent I mean late last year, uh, uh, had written a book uh, which looked at his 45-year journey conducting global undercover investigations. In fact, Mr. Marsh was a guest on this show, and we'd had a a broad conversation about his career, but also white-collar crime here in Canada and globally and how we uh, can stay ahead of it, or at least as much as possible, particularly here in Canada, where we haven't had the best track record. Uh, Take a listen uh, to his comments on on the need to overhaul uh, how we deal with white-collar crime in Canada. Take a listen. I know there's some efforts to develop a unit in Toronto where Toronto Stock Exchange and and the financial hub is located for the country, but they they got to get moving and get some credibility and, and get some cases going so the public can gain some confidence. We're known as a 
pretty soft touch. And then to finish it all off, if you do manage to register a conviction, the sentences are, 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 are lightweight, unlike the U.S., where if it's a serious fraud, and especially if there's elderly people who have been defrauded, you see that often, it's very sad, not much happens. That is Kim Marsha, who was on this show uh, late last year. And, of course, he has been named as a co-conspirator in the allegations, along with former Mountie uh, Bill Maker. Now, there's lots more uh, with this story. Joining me now to help me sort of follow it, because there are different layers to all of this, is John John Daly, former host of CKW's Back on the Beat and former Global News investigative journalist. John, thank you for joining us. Uh, it's a pleasure, Jazz. Listen, uh, Kim Marsh is a good guy. Mm-hmm. I know Kim Marsh. Uh, I've met Bill uh, Miker uh, once or twice, but I know Kim Marsh. I've had beers with Kim Marsh, and uh, I must say I'm shocked to hear this. Mm-hmm. Uh, last week, uh, before I came on your show, I did call Kim to get some background on Bill Miker and uh, his relationship, uh, you know, what was going on there, what his take was on it, because I trust Kim Marsh's opinion. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, uh, Kim Marsh, like, as you said, he's the author of The Cunning Edge on white-collar crime in Canada and internationally. And he was the former uh, head of the international, uh, you know, uh, investigations unit for unorganized crime for the RCMP. So uh, in any event, I'm, you know, Kim never called me back. I texted him. I emailed him. I put notices on his website, uh, left him voicemails, not a peep. Uh, I see in the news reports that uh, he did answer one call from Global and basically said he's not saying anything. So, you know, uh, there's a lot of weird questions here. You know, if he is an unindicted co-conspirator, is he going to be charged? Is he cooperating? Uh, You know, has he sought legal advice? Well, I'm sure he has if he's named publicly. Mm -hmm. He's innocent until proven guilty. So is Miker. Yeah. You know, the allegations are very serious. As you said, this is actually the new version of the security, the the so-called Security of Information Act. It's really the Official Secrets Act. So it deals with espionage. This is serious stuff. But from what we gather from Inspector Bodan from the RCMP, this has got nothing to do with Chinese election interference or Chinese interference in Canadian elections. So what does it have to do with? And, you know, who's this mysterious third party who uh, the RCMP claims the Chinese government was uh, making efforts to identify and intimidate outside the scope of Canadian law? Yeah. You know, why, I mean, this this thing, you know, nobody can get into this courtroom and find out what's really going on because it's basically under the Official Secrets Act. We may never know. No, exactly. Exactly. I mean, it's come out of the blue, and you know, uh, last late last week. And like you, Kim Marsh, I've had drinks with Mister Marsh. Uh, I viewed as somebody who's very knowledgeable, and I had him on the show as well uh, last uh, last fall, as I said. So I was a bit taken aback when the name came up. Uh, But you know, as I look at this, um, you know, I'm not sure what it is, and let's just say. There is some information. Perhaps things have weren't uh, uh, handled well by Mr. Miker in this case. Um, it to me, it doesn't seem like it's it, there's this grand conspiracy. I almost see a no. former police officer talking to former contacts, trying to get some broad information on things. But to mm-hmm. me, I don't at this point, and I and I say this as a layperson watching from afar, I don't see some great grand conspiracy yet. No. And, you know, I mean, as as much as we have a disdain and, uh, you know, questions about the Chinese government, the Uyghurs, uh, you know, this democracy uh, efforts in in Hong Kong and so forth, 
On the other hand, you know, whether it's China or uh, some other government, if they're trying to get trillions of dollars that have allegedly been embezzled out of their country away from uh, corrupt people who are now allegedly living here, you know, what's so wrong with that? Mm-hmm. So, you know, I mean, it may, it may not be our first choice, but on the other hand, you can kind of understand it. And if they hire some Canadians and give some money to, you know, the Canadian uh, economy, uh, maybe that's uh, money well spent. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't know. Now, you know, did did uh, Kim Marsh uh, make a mistake and, you know, receive a information or a document that he wasn't supposed to get? I guess it's possible. Did he do it knowingly? Uh, has he, you know, uh, been plumbing the depths of his old RCMP contacts and CSIS contacts? And, you know, the really fascinating thing here, Jasmine, I know you don't have a lot of time, is this guy Gaffney. So the other person that Bill Maker is not allowed to talk to other than Kim Marsh, who's mm-hmm. his alleged co-conspirator, is this guy Ross Gaffney, the ex-FBI uh, uh, head of the Bermuda short sting. This is the thing that brought Miker to uh, prominence and fame, which is the big case that took down uh, Vancouver area lawyer Martin Chambers mm-hmm. way back in the, you know, the early, whatever it was, the early uh, late 1900s. So it's just, you know, in the early uh, 2000s. So it's just not, you know, it's really, I wonder if this is low hanging fruit. If, if in fact, what happened was the FBI, you know, called up the RCMP and say, hey, you know, you better look into this. Yeah, no, I think you raise a, you, no, you raise a very good point, and, and, and Bob Mackin um, has written an article on this, and Vancouver is awesome. I would encourage people to go read it, uh, because this may be it. This may be, the, yeah. uh, as you say, uh, a focus on Mr. Gaffney or perhaps a U.S. or saying, wait a minute, we got to watch all of this. And these folks got kind of pulled in on something that's not really related to Mr. Miker or Mr. Marsh here. Yeah, possibly. I don't know, but it's 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 a fascinating case. The other, you know, it's funny. You know all the players. Like as I say, I've met Miker. Yeah. I know Kim. You know Kim. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ian Donaldson, the lawyer. I know him too. He's <laughs> he's allegedly uh, busy and not calling me back on this uh, particular file. At least not yet. Yeah. So it's you know, and and Ian is uh, is uh, Miker's lawyer. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, and, Ian, and Ian has covered you know uh, oh. many many. Uh, high-profile cases in the city for 25 years, uh, and he knows what he's doing, and a strong lawyer at that. So if you're going to hire a good lawyer, that he's, he'd be one of them, one of the top five, certainly in this yeah. city. So I really appreciate you coming on, John. Let's just stay on top of this, because I think part of it is just a conversation. It sounds wonderful on day one, where the headlines hit. Profound mm-hmm. thoughts are, are given by many a people, uh, and then when you get to the actual court case, what actually comes of it many years later, many months later, mm-hmm. there ain't much there, and that's part of it uh, in regards to why I want to stay on top of it. So I really appreciate your time today. My pleasure. Anytime, Jazz. All right. That is John Daly, former head of CKW's Back on the Beat, and of course, uh, former Global News investigative journalist. Let's focus a little bit on sports for a moment here. Uh, you may have heard of the last 24 hours or so, USC freshman Bronny James suffered cardiac arrest during uh, a practice. Uh, that happened on Monday. Um, uh, Mr. James is the 18-year-old son of Lakers star LeBron James, uh, and Bronny James collapsed and was taken to the hospital. He is in stable condition 
and is not in intensive care uh, as of Tuesday morning. Uh, Mr. James' medical emergency comes after Buffalo Bill star Damar Hamlin collapsed and went into cardiac arrest during a Monday night football game uh, in January. Uh, you also had last July USC's Vince Iwachuku suffered a sudden cardiac arrest during an informal practice and was hospitalized for a few days. In December of 2020, former Florida basketball star Keontae Johnson collapsed minutes after a tip-off in a game against Florida State. So uh, it's quite interesting to see these young athletes uh, dealing with cardiac arrest. I want to talk a little bit about cardiac arrest and what it means. Uh, Joining me now is Dr. Jason uh, Andrade. He's a cardiac electrophysiologist at St. Paul's Hospital and Vancouver General Hospital as well. Doctor, thank you for joining us today. No problem. It's wonderful to speak with you. Yeah. Uh, can you, first and foremost, just for our audience and for me as well, just def- sort of define what is cardiac arrest? Yeah. So a cardiac arrest is different than a heart attack, how we traditionally think about it. A heart attack is when there's a problem with the blood flow in the arteries that causes the heart muscle to die. Mm-hmm. But a cardiac arrest is really just an issue with the electrical system of the heart. It just goes haywire. Uh, the electricity causes the heart to beat so rapidly that it just doesn't contract uh, in a normal way. And so if the blood flow stops, there's no blood flow to the brain, no blood flow to the body, and it's an imminently fatal event unless it can be corrected. So it's really an electrical problem of the heart. Now, you think of these athletes, uh, young, uh, peak physical conditioning. Uh, You don't assume that these young athletes would be dealing with issues in and around the heart. How common is this among young athletes? Um, I I mean, I think there's a couple of different aspects of it. So the first thing to consider is this event is extremely rare on the whole, especially in younger, uh, generally healthy people. And so the reason why, you know, this is on the news and that we're talking about it now is it's such a dramatic event and it's so unusual when we see it. Uh, If we look back over, say, 20 years of follow-up, you know, the rate of cardiac arrest for people under age 35 is very stable. It's about 0.2 per 100,000 in the population. Uh, It hasn't really changed over the past 20 years. It's a very infrequent event on the whole. But then the flip side of it is we know that younger athletes are at higher risk than the average person in their age group. So they're about two to four times uh, higher risk of having a cardiac arrest relative to one of their peers at the same age. Uh, and in regards to um, you, you were describing what cardiac arrest uh, is really, uh, how important is a quick response to what's happening? Oh, it's incredibly important. I mean, the, the main thing is that uh, when the cardiac arrest happens, the heart's activity is so disorganized that nothing's really happening. There's no blood flow moving through the body. There's no oxygen getting to the brain. And it's such an immediate event, and it's so dramatic. And really, the recognition has to be there that if someone collapses, particularly during sports, which is very unusual, you need to immediately attend to them. And if you can give them CPR to keep the blood flowing until you can get them back into a normal heart rhythm with something like an AED, um, you really can make a difference in terms of that person's survival, but also, you know, protecting their brain injury and making sure that they have a meaningful life afterwards. Mm-hmm. And you see that with someone like Damar Hamlin, who had his arrest on the field, was immediately attended to, uh, and now is basically making the recovery back to professional sports activities. Do professional organizations and even amateur organizations, universities, uh, a lot, and even uh, you know, local sports leagues, do you have? Do you think it's important for them to have? Uh, a cardiac arrest protocol then? 
Oh, of course. I mean, I think that, you know, there's different aspects to it. So one is the recognition that this is a very unusual thing. Uh, Unfortunately, I think it was last year or the year before, there was an athlete that collapsed on the basketball court, and it just wasn't recognized quick enough, and people didn't attend to them. And that delay is where the bad things start to happen in terms of the long run. So, you know, by recognizing that a collapse is abnormal, immediately attending to them, doing something to get their heart rhythm restored, then that's how you can, you know, have a meaningful uh, improvement in their overall survivability, as well as not being disabled. So, you know, having AEDs available, Mm -hmm. having, uh, you know, ambulance crews or trained professionals, or even just bystanders who are trained in CPR, you know, they're recognizing immediately able to attend to the person is going to have the biggest impact. And does working out increase risk of cardiac arrest? Uh, not specifically. I mean, there's many different reasons why someone can have a cardiac arrest. Some of them are genetic problems. Uh, some of it has to do with anatomical problems with the heart based on how it sort of developed. Uh, and then there's other, you know, acquired problems that can lead to someone being at increased risk. And so for most, um, you know, general population, you know, the benefits of exercise far outweigh these very, very small risks that come along with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you have a cardiac history, then, you know, your risk profile is different than if you're young and otherwise healthy, where the benefits of exercise are going to help you in the long run. Dr. Andrade, thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. No problem. It's wonderful talking to you. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.